and it bears on where I'm going. Uh, it doesn't, it isn't directly involved in that sense, but it, it has some bearing on it. And the question is, how close is this nation to a financial collapse? How close, then, is the world to a financial collapse? Uh, because this has direct bearing on where we're going to go in the sermon. We see more and more in the news that a collapse is inevitable, that we have gotten so far in debt and into bankruptcy as a nation that uh, we cannot survive. Uh, bankruptcy is already here, even though it has not been declared. And now we're so many trillions of dollars in debt, and we've got this so-called fiscal cliff that was truly a joke compared to the things that really are the problems. And they did a little bit uh, and docked you 2% on your paycheck already, uh, even though they did not really cut the taxes on or rich people at all. But I don't want to get into that too much. It was basically just a political game. And we face far, far bigger difficulties coming. And the next, which is an even bigger problem, is that we've reached the debt ceiling that Congress set, or will very shortly now. And they don't know whether Congress can get together and raise the debt limit. Of course, ultimately they would, because that's the game they play. They'll make it sound bad, and then they do it anyway. It's always been that way. But someone has even said, well, since we're not sure Congress will raise the debt limit so we can keep spending money we do not have, and I say printing it, they don't even bother to print most of it anymore. They just type it into the computer, and it bingo, it's money. So someone came up with the idea, well, let's just print a trillion-dollar coin out of platinum, and then we can cash it in which is just one way of saying it's, it's a trillion-dollar credit card is what it amounts to. Instead of making it round, why don't they just go ahead and make it rectangular? Uh, and then it's been taken up as a serious possibility to get around this thing. But how far can you go before it collapses? Someone sent me an article I read yesterday evening that China is spending dollars, U.S. dollars, which they have boku of, as fast as they can possibly spend them. They're buying iron, they're buying copper, they're buying gold, they're buying anything that they can get that is a tangible asset with American dollars because they know the American dollar is doomed. And the ones they have are going to become worthless soon. So they're trying to get rid of them. And they're stockpiling copper and iron in places that were made for wheat or grain, anywhere they can find spare space, they're buying and stockpiling uh, things that can be used by industry or tangible assets as opposed to dollars. Not only that, but they and other nations have quit buying U.S. dollars. That is, they've almost stopped buying U.S. Treasury bonds. They're in a catch-22. They're afraid to quit buying U.S. dollars for fear it'll collapse while they still have a pocket full. Yet they've slowed it way down while they try to divest themselves of the dollar while they can still get something for it. And there are deals being made around the world for countries to use their own currency to settle their debts instead of the U.S. dollar. Now, you have to understand why we have been able to survive as long as we have, and that is that the U.S. dollar has been the uh, primary currency of the world. This be had its beginnings in 1913 when they made the deal uh, to create the Federal Reserve, which is not federal. Uh, it is a private company run primarily by uh, Edom, uh, let's, what am I trying to say? Edomites posing as Jews in the banking industry. And by, because of our military prowess, we were able to make deals around the world. The people would not buy oil, and we made the deal with Saudi Arabia and all the Arabians, really. 
that oil would not be sold anywhere in the world unless U.S. dollars were used. So they had to somehow come up with U.S. dollars in order to buy oil and then other commodities, and the U.S. dollar became the currency exchange around the world, the only one usable except within a nation. So that has allowed us to print dollar upon dollar until the value has gone down, and it will go to nothing shortly because nobody wants it anymore. And they are feverishly building treaties now to use their own dollars to settle their debts between countries instead of dollars. In other words, it's getting to the point where no one wants them. And as this reaches the climax, they will become utterly worthless. Now, I don't want to get into a lot about geopolitics. We see this story in the Bible. We've been there before to the various scriptures about it. That there will be a tremendous crash. Zephaniah 1 is one scripture we've used. And it's in the land of Israel, which we are. So it's coming. We know it's coming. The Bible says it's coming. And now people who are aware of what is going on in the world and what the financial situation and system is built upon see that it's coming. And they're running from the U.S. dollar like rats from a sinking ship. Any way they can get out, they're working on it. So, inevitably, there's no question of if, it is only a question of when the U.S. dollar becomes worth less than toilet paper. Less because it isn't a good, decent quality for toilet paper. But it will have no other value. So it's coming. I think we're all pretty well aware of that. And I can go through some scriptures and show you the story in the Bible. Just as it is shaping up. And it will tell you exactly who's behind it. So we don't have to go into all the conspiracy theories that other people go into. We have the Bible story to tell us the whole story. But I pose that question with a little bit of an addendum to show you what is happening to the U.S. dollar and our financial system around the world, and that it is doomed. And the reason I asked how close, rather than who's doing it exactly or how it is to come about, but how close because that has a dynamic effect upon us and upon what God is going to do, and we need to be prepared when the time comes. And that is why it becomes important to us. Now, I'm not going to try to give an answer as to how close it is. I know it is getting close because of what is going on in the world and how different nations are trying to get rid of our currency. So when the bottom drops out and it is no longer needful, then it will not be useful and it will not be wanted. Now is that going to happen within the next month or two or three or six or within the next year or two? That's a question mark. I don't know. Some people in the news and on the internet are predicting it'll happen this spring, others the summer, some in 2014. They all have the sense that it's fairly soon, let's put it that way. And what I look at, it shows me that it, it appears to be fairly soon. Now, I think there are some events that have to occur before the financial crash. And I want to go into some of those scriptures today because they will impact us. Let's start out, well, let's go to Micah 4 first. This one we used as a pretty important one in understanding that we needed to get away from the cities, away from Babylon, <coughs> away from what is about to happen because it will be very dangerous, and that is not a good place to be. But here it talks about the last days in chapter 4, verse 1 of Micah, so that introduces it, and I'll not go through all, all of this uh, as we have done before. But 
verse 7, I will make her that halted a remnant. Well, God here begins to talk about a remnant of people. Now, we know from much experience with the Scriptures that this applies to the church primarily and may have some fulfillment in the millennium as Israel has been crippled and taken into captivity. But we know that the church has already been pretty well blown apart and destroyed. So it's the spiritual remnant here that is being talked about. And her that was cast far off, a strong people, and, for, and the eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So what is starting soon in the church is going to be something that continues on into the millennium, and Christ and the Father are coming to reign from Mount Zion forevermore. But there has to be a remnant of the people, a crippled people, if you will, those who halted as they walked, crippled, not able to do anything. And they will be drawn and be ruled over from that time forward. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, which is the church, Jeremiah 12:22 and 23 again, shows Zion and Jerusalem in prophecy, typify the church. Unto you shall it come, even the first dominion, the first leadership, the first rulership, the first oversight, the first beginning of the drawing together of the remnant of God will be to the church. Uh, you'll be given first dominion. Unto you shall it come the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry out aloud? Why are you praying? Why are you crying out for deliverance, for help, from strength, for strength from God that seems so long in coming? Why do you cry out? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? All this began to come upon us after Herbert Armstrong died, and then the scattering and the false leadership and so on occurred. So it's talking about us right now. Our counselors perished, for pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. It's like we've gone into labor. <laughs> There's a lot of pain, a lot of concern, a lot of trepidation with giving childbirth. And God likens what the church is going through to that. And he says we have to bring forth Christ. As it says there in Isaiah 7, we bring forth Emmanuel. A child would be born, Emmanuel, to the church. So this uh, comes up fairly often through the prophecies. So why are you crying out? Because we are left rudderless, leaderless. Uh, we're scattering, splintering. Pretty well done now. But then he tells us, when this comes upon us, not to try to avoid it, not to get away from it, not to run from it or give up and quit or whatever, but to be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. So the instruction from God is here that when all this comes, it's time to buckle down and, as they say in childbirth, bear down and produce that which we are supposed to produce, which is godliness. That should be the goal and the purpose. Many in the church do not understand this. They're confused. So they're giving up entirely, or they're going from group to group trying to find an answer, and there are no answers, frankly, out there. There just aren't. The only answer is right here in this book, in this Word. And there are precious few who understand it. Very few, and you're among them. So he said, don't try to get away from it. Be in pain. It takes pain to overcome, to grow, to become more like God, to produce the character of God among ourselves. So he says, hang in there, the birth will come. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the open places or field or wilderness, depending on the translation. So he says, when 
this travail and this labor comes upon the church that will scatter it and cause it to be needful of a remnant to survive, as it says above, then is the time to leave society and the culture we've been in, to leave the city and go dwell in the field. It's not the time to go back to the city. It's a time, if you're in the city, to go to the field when this comes upon us. And it is upon us. Go forth out of the city and dwell in the field, and you shall go even to Babylon. So you can't, if, the, if America is the great Babylon of the end time, which it is, and we've had a long series to prove that from Scripture, we're not to leave America... We're not to leave Ephraim, which is what we are. We are to go to the wilderness, the open spaces, instead. So we're out here in northern Arizona and southern Utah in the wilderness area, out where there's a lot of open space. There you shall be delivered. You're not going to be delivered in the city. You're going to be delivered out here in this wilderness area. God calls it Zion. We'll see a little more why later, I think. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So it is the area we go to where God is going to cause protection here at this end time. And people will be gathered against us that say, Let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. You'll notice in here it talks about Zion more than it does Jerusalem in these particular passages, and we'll note that as we go through this, these scriptures I have outlined for today. And it just struck me today, I think, why he uses that more. And that is that Mount Zion, as the Bible describes it, the joy of all the land, our most popular national park, is Zion National Park. Tremendous beauty is there, and majestic heights, and God called it Zion, the city of our God, and told us to count the towers there and various other things that show that a physical area would be that. It says in one two places that Zion is Jerusalem, and I mean is, is uh, Hermon, and Hermon is Zion in Deuteronomy 4 and in Psalm somewhere. Mount Hermon over in the Middle East is 80 miles or so from Jerusalem. But he talks about the two together. But Zion is very prominent. One of our most prominent mountainous areas that so many people come to. And it's somewhere people could look to. But Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem, the original in the Promised Land, is disguised. It was made so desolate that no one would recognize what it was. So you're going to see that in these scriptures we're going to examine that he so often talks about gathering at Zion. And people will ask the way to Zion because it is there and obvious, whereas Jerusalem is hidden for the moment and will be for a short while yet. But Zion is there for anyone who wants to, to see. So he calls us the daughter of Zion more often in these particular types of passage than he does the daughter of Jerusalem or something of that nature. Because if he said Jerusalem, everybody would think of the Middle East. That would be automatic in their mind. But if he says Zion, they got a choice. The, what they call Zion, which isn't even a hill over there, or Zion National Park which is pretty well known. So I think God used this phrasing, even though Zion and Jerusalem both refer to the church and they both refer to physical places, because Zion at the moment is more prominent and more identifiable on Google Earth or, <laughs> or you know, just a word search or whatever. Uh, it can be found. So he tells us here that we are to get out, to go. Now let's go to about three right quick to show this gathering that we begin to see there in Micah 4. Uh, let's hit Isaiah 45 quickly. I 
I won't go through the whole context here, but uh, let's pick it up a little bit. Verse 8, Drop down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Eternal, have created it. Now, this chapter previous to this talks about our sins being forgiven in verse 22 of 44. It talks about an end-time Cyrus who will come that God will reveal the end-time, the treasures of God to. And then he says that this is all going to lead down to salvation and righteousness. That's the point. Okay? It's very interesting down here. Verse 11, Thus says the Eternal, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command you me. Can anybody tell God what's going to happen to those sons that he's called out of the world as spiritual Israel? I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. In other words, I'm in charge. And we see a few verses back that he says that these things that are going to happen will be done to show the whole world that He is God. You can go to Zechariah 3, and it talks about signs and wonders being done by the church. You can go to Isaiah 7, where it says the same thing. So between the treasures of God being unveiled and signs and wonders, the whole world is going to know that God is God. Okay? Now here's a very interesting verse. Uh, Well, let's get 13 first. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall not let go my captives, not for price nor reward, says the Eternal of hosts. So God has raised up in his righteousness someone who will come and lead, and they won't be able to do anything with God's people, those who are captive of him, because of conversion, because of the Holy Spirit, because of understanding who they are and what they have to do. Uh, Nobody can take them away from God, is ultimately what he's saying here. But it's very interesting in verse 14. Thus says the Eternal, The labor of Egypt and merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you. Now he's talking about his sons Jacob here as being the... Uh, the subject, or the antecedent in verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, have I called you by your name. Speaking of the end time Cyrus. So the point is not Cyrus. The point is his people, Jacob, or spiritual Jacob, spiritual Israel. The church here first. So that's who it's referring to in verse 14. Is that these people will come to Jacob, or to the church. Notice it says, they shall come after you. If there are signs and wonders, if there are treasures and salvation and righteousness springing up from the earth, people will recognize that and come after the ones who are involved. They shall come after you in chains, they shall come over, and they shall fall down to you. They shall make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is none else There is no God or no other God implied. So these people from afar are going to see signs and wonders and these things that are listed in Isaiah 45 as well, specifically here. And they will come and offer their services. They will make themselves slaves in that sense. In other words, they will chain themselves to you. You don't go get them and put them in chains. They will come to you and say, I am being, I'm going to chain myself to you. I'm going to hang on to you. I'm going to serve and help you in what you have to do because God is with you. It's like the Old Testament situation where there came a time when they turned slaves loose. And if that slave liked being where he was, he had a hole punched in his ear and became a permanent servant uh, of his own accord, of his own will. And that's the type of thing this is talking about. I know from Haggai very clearly 
But God says that He is going to gather a remnant together to build the latter temple. 1 through 6 show very plainly along with Revelation 11. So this is going to happen. And they will come because God will stir them to come. And I think the way He will stir is through the things listed here in chapter 45 plus the signs and wonders of Zechariah 3 and Isaiah 7 and other places. They will see God's hand in a small part of the church somewhere. And they will come. Now, where do they come? We will see that as we go on through these scriptures about the gathering. We already saw it a little bit in Micah 4 where it mentions Zion and the daughter of Zion. But we'll see that uh, manifestly proved as we go through this. Truly you are a God that hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. God makes it clear that in this period of time, turn. Now these peoples mentioned here are of Mitzrayim or Egypt, Ethiopia and the Sabaeans, uh, probably of the race of Ham, it appears for the most part. And they will come. I find it very interesting that we have people now in Africa who are showing a great deal of interest in what we believe, including the Passover. They agree with it. Is God beginning to stir a few people to come to Zion? I do not know yet, and I don't know too much about these people yet. I'm going to go over there and explore it. But we didn't go over there and beat a drum and drum up business. Uh, they came to us and asked to be involved in what we are doing. I don't know how much of it they understand yet, but I will ask you here today to pray that this trip be of help to these people and that help come from God. I, as a human being, can only take little old me over there and I can do nothing for them of myself. But if God's Spirit is there in me and in them, then perhaps we can examine some scriptures and help them understand more clearly what is coming down. In fact, the leader of the group has said that he sees there is to be a gathering. So he is, he's gotten that much from the website somehow. So perhaps, I don't know this for sure, but perhaps there is a stirring beginning there of some people who are seeing what we believe and agreeing with it. And maybe they would not be stirred to come here until they see some of the things that I earlier mentioned. Uh, but maybe that's what it will take to stir them to actually come and help. But if those people be the beginning of verse 14, which is a possibility, then they will come to help serve and build the temple of God because we know that is the job that is to be done at Jerusalem and Zion. And it's in the context of one coming to say that Jerusalem and the temple will be built, Isaiah 45, verse 28. So it is in that context that this stirring we're reading about in verse 14 of chapter 45 occurs. We shall see. But I pray you will give me your prayers that I have the wisdom and the understanding and can choose the right topics to talk to these people about. And I can go over there and I, I can expound Philippians to them. Well, okay. Is that going to help them in what God is doing and where He is headed at the moment? Probably not, other than it's good Christian living. They need something to show them what God is doing, how He's going to do it, where He's going to do it, so that they might be clued in as you are and what needs to be done. I think that has to be the overall purpose. Because what do we have to offer that United or Philadelphia or Living or pick a number? What do we have to offer beyond what they offer? They can all give sermons on Christian living. 
They can all give sermons on at least the periphery of prophecy. You know, the United States is coming down and the ten nations will do it and stuff we knew in Worldwide. But doesn't go much beyond that. And they don't have a clue about what God is going to do here in the end time. So that's what we have to offer that is different than what anyone else has to offer. I don't know of anyone else that understands these things but us. There may be a few individuals here and there that get part of it, but they don't have the story put together because they don't understand these scriptures. So I would think that if I'm to take something that far away and give to people, it would be along the lines of something that we can impart that no one else can to them that would help them. Because they already have representatives of the Church of God over there through United and Living and various ones who can give them, as I say, Christian living. But they've gone beyond that. They understand the Hebrew calendar doesn't work. They understand about the Passover now. They understand certain things that, frankly, only we understand for the most part. So, they quit United. They quit living. They quit all these different organizations. They're looking for more. And therefore, I feel that what I need to give them is the more that no one else can provide. We go over there and just repeat the stuff that we knew in Worldwide. It isn't going to help them. They're beyond that. So, as I prepare to go over there next week, uh, beginning of next week, right after Sabbath, um, I need to be formulating the areas to discuss and, and have it in mind. So I would appreciate your prayers on that. I don't know exactly what these people are or where they're headed or, or so on yet until I have a chance to sit down and talk in depth with them. But uh, they seem very interested enough so that it's worth a trip over there. And uh, these scriptures kind of leap out at me, like verse 14 of chapter 45, once we understand the gathering and how some of those people from afar who are part of the church already are looking for something more, something deeper, something that explains what's going on in a way that they've not been able to get. So this is a very interesting verse here because it's talking about gathering. These people will come. We're coming because we see God is with you and we want to help what needs to be done. Isaiah 52. Uh, here I'll pick it up in uh, verse 14. I'm just dipping into the context here. We've been through it, but a, a bit of a review in verse 14. The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed and that he should not, not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. The church has been in captivity in Babylon. We've not been able to get loose. We see the financial crash coming. We see famine and pestilence and drought at our doorstep. We see nations who are coming against America. And people don't want to starve to death, he's saying. They want an answer. But I am the eternal, your God, that divides the sea. Whose, wo whose waves roared, the Eternal of hosts is His name. And I have put my words in your mouth. God has given us all these prophecies and helped us understand them so that we can use our mouth to convey them to others. I have covered you in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundation of the earth, and say unto Zion, You are my people. Now, that can refer to the church of Zion. It can also refer to the people who will be at the physical Zion. Pardon? I'm in 51. See, if you knew all the chapters by heart, then you'd recognize right offhand that I'm in the wrong chapter. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I was looking at 52 here, and I was reading back in 51. My apologies.
Uh, let's see, we're down to the verse, end of verse 16. To Zion, you are my people. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which is the church. There again, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. Which have drunk at the hand of the Eternal the cup of His fury. You've drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. There's none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she's brought up. So when Herbert Armstrong, our counselor, our king, died there, as it says in Micah 4, there's no one else that we can all look to. The church has just been confused and scattered ever since. These two things are come to you. Who shall be sorry for you? Desolation, destruction, famine, and the sword. By whom shall I comfort you? Church has fallen apart. There's nobody that wants to come comfort the church. We're all on our own. And the, and the nation will be that way too when this prophecy hits the nation. There will be no leaders in our nation to guide us. There aren't already, really. What good is Congress? Now he says in verse, I'm going to skip on down a little bit. Verse 21, Hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Staggering around, in other words, not knowing where you're going. And falling down. Thus says the eternal, or your Lord, the, thus says your Lord, the Lord, and your God that pleads the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall drink no more of it again. He's going to take <coughs> this scattering and this trouble away from us, and he's going to put it in the hand of those who have overseen our captivity in a Babylonian system, Satan's world, to the physical nation. He'll take it away from the church and give it to them. I will put it in the hand of them that afflict you, which have said to your soul, Bow down that we may go over. And you have laid your body as the ground, and as a street to them that walked all over you. And this world has walked all over us. So that's the position we have been in. But God is going to, he tells us here, to wake up, to put on our beautiful garments, and to shake loose from Babylon, quit being walked on, and sit up, stand up. And how we'll be redeemed without money in verse 3. I'm in chapter 52 now. And it goes on down, uh, shows a restoration when the two witnesses will see eye to eye when the miracles begin in verse 9. And at this juncture, he says in verse 11, when all these things have come down, the church has been scattered. He's going to turn it around and begin to bless the church and put all this on the physical nation. Verse 11, he says, Depart you, depart you, go you out from there, Touch no unclean thing. Go you out of the midst of her. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Haggai tells us that if you touch an unclean body, that you are unclean by that body. And when we touch this world and let it have influence on us, then we are unclean before God. So it's a spiritual uncleanliness here that we're talking about. He says, For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Eternal will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now this is different than Matthew 24, when the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple, where it says, Don't even go back in your house, but run. That is a hasty flight. This was one that has a little more time involved, it isn't as hasty. You have time to get there. While conditions are still such that it can be done. But it's in this time. Now, right after this chapter, you have chapter 53, <coughs> which talks about Christ's sacrifice and the Passover, if you will. And right after that, in chapter 54... It says, Seeing, O barren, that did not bear. Here's the same analogy again. Remember Micah 4? To travail, to be in pain, to produce, to give to the child to be born. So here he says, You who were trying to have a child and couldn't, 
as Isaiah a little later on says, it was just like you pass gas instead of a baby, to put it bluntly. But that's the way God talks. Sing, O barren that did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not travail with child. It didn't seem like there was anything to be born. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the Eternal. So the church has been desolate. God has had his face turned from it. And he says, you who have been desolate are going to have more than those who were in a so-called married state, thinking that they were uh, within God's uh, good graces and blessings, or as they might term it, Philadelphians. No, the one that seemed barren, that wasn't producing anything, is suddenly going to have more children than those who thought they were the married wife of Christ. The bigger organizations are going to come apart, in other words, and the remnant that survives and comes together, as Haggai says, is going to be more in number at that time than the rest of the church, because it will go into tribulation this 10% remnant that God will draw out. And it'll have more children, even though it has had very few. It will have more. So he says, Enlarge the place of your tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitations. Spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes. Your tent is going to be too small. Because growth is coming. You'll break forth on the right hand and on the left, and your seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. So here he refers again to some of those coming to be of the Gentiles, that the children will be, some of them, Gentiles. That ties in with what we already read in chapter 45 of the Sabaeans, the Mitzriamites, and the Ethiopians. And you won't remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, for your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Verse 6, For the Eternal has called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when you were refused, says your God. So even though we seem small and desolate and forsaken now, that is going to change. For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercy will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Eternal, your Redeemer. And he uses the waters of Noah never coming again and swears by that and by his own name. So here again it talks about a gathering coming under this time of travail and trying to bring forth and nothing happening, but it will occur. Here they come, it says. I thought it was really interesting that we actually bought a tent to meet in this year. Uh, so we do have a tent, and then God says it's not going to be big enough. Things are going to change at some point. When? How close is the financial collapse? Let's see here now, because <clears throat> it talks about a financial collapse and a societal and military collapse as well in some of the scriptures we're about to examine. And I want us to understand when this is going to occur. Because if the, if the collapse is close, does this happen before or after? Let's answer that question. Let's go to Isaiah 48, first of all. This chapter is talking about the house of Jacob, which are called by the name of God. They call themselves the holy city, verse 2. <clears throat> so he talks about here, about the church, verse 18, Oh, that you had hearkened to my commandments. Then had your peace been as a river and your righteousness as the waves of the sea. And that's what he always encourages us to do, is turn to God and obedience to Him, and everything would be fine. But in verse 20, he says, Go you forth of Babylon, or get away from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare you. Tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth. Say you, the Eternal has redeemed his servant Jacob. 
Now that's the message, isn't it? To tell people that God is going to gather His people out of Babylon. Now that would be America is the leader of Babylon, but it can in a larger sense be the whole world, which is the Babylonian or satanic system. And he has said he's going to gather this, his gathering from the north, south, east, and west from the ends of the earth. So when he speaks of that Babylon, he means the whole world. You have to flee from the society, the culture, the situation that the world is in. Then he goes on down uh, and talks about it. Verse 14, But Zion said, The Eternal has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. <clears throat> Do we feel bereft and deserted, and our prayers don't much get answered, and we feel like we've been deserted? So he says, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, they may forget, yet will I not forget them, or you. It says, a mother is going to forget her nursing child before I forget you. How many mothers have ever heard their baby cry and knew it needed to nurse? And then ignored it. Pretty rare. But God says that a woman will forget her nursing child before he forgets us. <clears throat> I have graven you upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your children shall make haste. Your destroyers and they that made you waste shall go forth from you. Lift up your eyes round about and behold, all these gather themselves together <clears throat> and come to you. God says, verse 20, The children which you shall have after you have lost the others... The church came apart. The children are lost. They're gone. Shall say again in your ears, The place is too tough, too rough, too straight for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. So he's going to have a gathering of people who are coming out of the world who want to come and be with God's people. <clears throat> then shall you say in your heart, verse 21, who has begotten me these, seeing I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive, and removing to and fro? Church is wandering about. Who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. These, where had they been? So it'll come in that sense as a surprise that all these people will suddenly begin to gather together. And he says, come out of Babylon here to do it. Now if you go on, let's see. Right in here somewhere. Chapter 47 is the chapter that says that Babylon is going to be destroyed, going to be brought down. Uh, and it's going to be suddenly become desolate. Verse 11. And they won't know from where it rises. It's going to hit them suddenly. So then he says in chapter 48, Listen, church of God, come out of this. I think that implies before it happens, because they're going to be destroyed, and if you stay there, you'll be destroyed with them. We'll see that here in a moment. Um, let's go to Jeremiah 50 now. I've only got about three more areas I want to go to, or four. Jeremiah 50. Here he begins, well, verse 39 of the preceding chapter, 49 indicates that this is speaking of the latter days. This wasn't the original Nebuchadnezzar destroying Jerusalem and so on originally. This is the latter days prophecy for it. And it says, Babylon is taken, verse 2, in the middle of it. For out of the north, verse 3, there shall come a nation against her, which shall make her land desolate, and none shall dwell therein. They shall remove, they shall depart, both man and beast. In those days, and in that time, and it's speaking of the United States here, uh, we, we can go through and prove that all through this chapter and the next one, along with some others. Uh, in those days and in that time, says the Eternal, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah, together, going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Eternal, their God. Now, the only ones who know the Eternal, true God, are the church. 
The others will seek a false messiah, and they will follow the beast and the false prophet, the whole world. So this obviously has to be speaking of church people who know their God. Where will they go? Where are they coming to? They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces pointed there, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the eternal in a perpetual, everlasting covenant. And he says, once this is done, it is going to be from now on. We already read that. That shall not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains and have gone from mountain to hill, from bigger churches to smaller. Mountains are known as governments or organizations in the Bible. They've forgotten their resting place. Verse 8, Remove out of the midst of Babylon and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as the he-goat before the flock. Micah 4 says, Go to the wilderness, but go even to Babylon. Here he says the same thing, Remove out of the midst of Babylon. Get out of the middle of it where it has its effect and get out where it doesn't have effect or not as much effect. Then it goes on and on in talking about the destruction of the modern Babylon, America today. Uh, let's see. Let's go on down to verse 25. Well, verse 23 talks about how the hammer of the whole earth is cut asunder. Who could that be other than the United States? We're the one that hammers anybody we want to. Nobody else does that. That's us. Says he's laid a, snare, laid a snare for it in verse 24. The Eternal has opened, verse 25, his armory and has brought forth the weapons of his indignation. For this is the work of the Eternal God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. <coughs> it says to come against her from every direction. Uh, verse 27, slay a hauler bullocks, let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their visitation. Verse 28, the voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon. There's going to be a cry from people who escape what is coming. And what do they do? To declare in Zion the vengeance of the eternal our God, the vengeance of His temple. The temple of God, the end time latter temple, will be built in the environs of Zion and Jerusalem. The real ones. They're going to flee to Zion. See how it, it talks about Zion more than Jerusalem, though. Because Jerusalem is still hid. It is still desolate. It is not there for anyone to see before all this happens. But Zion is. So he says that they will flee and declare in Zion the vengeance of God. So they're going to gather to Zion. They'll ask, where is Zion, it says, going there weeping in verse 4. Down here it says they'll escape from Babylon and go there. Micah tells us where we are to go, out in the wilderness within Babylon. Not to get clear out, but to the wilderness of it. Chapter 51, verse 6. He's still talking here in this whole context about the destruction of our nation. <clears throat> Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Again, out of the middle of it, out of where it has its great effect. And deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the eternal's vengeance. So he's saying, get out before this comes down. And you get caught up in it. So that to me indicates that the gathering and the remnant will come seeking Zion before it all comes down. While there is still time to escape. Not in great haste, like Matthew 24, when the abomination is set up, but do it when you see this coming. That's why I ask, how far away is it? Because these scriptures seem to indicate the gathering will occur because people will escape in time to miss it. It will come before. Uh, same chapter, verse 44. 
chapter 51 of Jeremiah. I will punish Baal in Babylon, and I will bring forth out of his mouth that which he has swallowed up, and the nations shall not flow together any more to him. The wall of Babylon shall fall. The nations all come to us now, but then they won't. My people, those who are called by his name, as he says in another place, my people... Go you out of the midst of her, deliver you every man his soul from the fierce anger of the eternal. God says he's about to unleash all this. Get out while you can, ahead of time. And lest your heart faint, and you hear fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land. <clears throat> a rumor shall both come one year, and after that in another year shall come a rumor, ruler, and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. And this is shaping up between the states, the counties, the sheriff's departments, the feds, the politicians, over guns, over various things. They're aligning themselves against each other and have been for some time. <coughs> and then violence is going to break in, out in this land and then it will be invaded from outside the land. But civil violence, it appears, will occur before we're even invaded. So he says, get out. Verse 50, you that have escaped the sword, go away, stand not still. Remember the eternal far off and let Jerusalem come into your mind. Jerusalem and Zion is the place to go and you better know where it is. And you better get there before this all comes down. Now he says there in Zechariah 2 that he's standing up to do his work. And he says in Haggai that he is going to shake the heavens and the earth. So it is in that context, right at the end, that all this starts happening and the gathering has to occur just before it occurs. He tells us to gather in Haggai, and this is one of the strongest proofs, and then there at the very end of Haggai, he says, Yet a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth. So gather yourselves to build the latter temple. Get out of the middle of it before it comes down, and come to do my work. Zephaniah 2 is also a very good indicator, because chapter 1 talks about how uh, the financial crash is coming. In this land, and I won't go into proving all of that as to who it's talking of, but it's talking here about the end time, verse uh, 14 of chapter 1. The great day of the eternal is near, it is near, and hastens greatly. So this is very much an end time prophecy, and how their silver or gold will not deliver them, verse 18, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. He shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. So when he rises to shake the earth... Uh, he's going to make a total devastation of it. Then in chapter 2, he gives us instruction. <clears throat> gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O nation not desirable. As a people, we have not been desirable to God. That is why he has had his face turned from us. He says, if we'll turn to him, he will turn to us. <coughs> but he tells us to gather Verse 2, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the eternal come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek you the eternal, all you meek of the earth, which have worked his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the eternal's anger. So he tells us here, before this decree of financial destruction comes upon us, to gather ourselves together and to get away from the danger areas. <clears throat> Let's go from there to Revelation 18. I'll wind this up here very shortly. I'm sure most of us will remember... Revelation 17 and 18 of the great whore, and God speaks of Israel as the great whore in Ezekiel 16. Not the Catholic Church. Now, they're a whore too, but the great one is us. Sorry, but that's the truth. 
Chapter 18, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory, and he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of demons, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So he's predicting Babylon to fall twice here. I don't think it's just emphasis, I think it's twice. We are the present leader of Babylon, and we are about to fall. And then a new Babylonian regime under Satan will occur, which will rule the whole earth. And then Christ is going to return shortly afterward and take the beast and the false prophet by the nap of the neck and throw them into a lake of fire. So Babylon, the leader of the world Babylonian system today is America, we're falling first. And then the other will rise up, and then God will take care of it. So it will fall twice. There is more violence, more crime occurring day by day and week by week right now. The news is full of it. And I think demonic spirits are working more and more uh, effectually against mankind right now than they have been. Like it says here, for all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. All nations have drunk of our culture. They all use our dollar. That's changing rapidly, but that's the way it has been. <clears throat> and all the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. We should have been depending upon God, but we as a nation have been depending upon our lovers around the world. Financial lovers, if you will. The merchants of the earth, that's where the fornication occurs, are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. We have made all nations on the world more profitable and many of them rich. The Catholic Church hasn't made anybody but themselves rich. They take from the people wherever they go. But we've made many nations rich. It's talking to us. And I heard another voice come from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. <clears throat> that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. So here the instruction is, it's about to fall, and then this context goes on and describes both a financial and a military destruction of this nation, and how the merchants of the earth are going to be screaming because of the financial collapse, and because they can no longer use us as a market anymore. So he tells us before this comes down to get out of it and gather ourselves together. So I think a message that needs to come that we need to deliver and that we need to deliver those who do come to us is that it is time to get out of this world system before it collapses and that this is going to occur within the United States of America where he gathers his people to the true Zion within the original promised land that he has given to Jacob. And it is the Anglo-Saxons, by the way, that the whole world is really arrayed against and that Esau hates because they hate Jacob. And we are of Jacob, we are of Isaac. The Anglo-Saxons are Isaac's sons or sons of Isaac. And they're the ones that Esau hates. And they're very much involved in the destruction of this country. And they are helping bring about this financial collapse through the Federal Reserve and through those who control the banks because the Edomites, those children of Esau, are in charge of those things in the fat places of the earth. And they're going to laugh over the collapse of Jacob. Obadiah warns them about that and says they'll be destroyed for doing it. But this collapse is coming, and by all that I see and read, it is coming fairly soon. I'm not going to try to put a number on that, months or year or two or whatever, but it does not appear at this point it can last long when they are getting rid of their dollars as fast as they can, and they know that America is coming down. So they're preparing themselves as quickly as they can for that. So they think it's soon. I don't know what you think, but they think it's soon.
the Chinese, the Japanese, the Germans, different people, Europeans. And so do those people in charge of the banks and the central banks because they're the ones that are engineering it. They are the Edomites doing it to us. And they are getting their ducks lined up very rapidly. So, I think these scriptures will indicate that God is going to begin gathering His people before this collapse comes. And if it's coming as soon as people think it is, then the gathering can't be too far away. I'll say think it is and too far because I don't want to try to set dates and I don't know one to set anyway, but I see it coming and I see it coming rapidly. So we need to be praying, brethren, that God will guide us and lead us because He has shown us the true Zion. He's shown us where Jerusalem is. He's shown us that this is the land of Ephraim and the original promised land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> and he has directed that this quadrant of the United States be where we gather. And he sent us here to prepare a place, a beachhead, a highway for God's people to come. We have very special knowledge. And we need to prepare ourselves spiritually to be ready to take care of these people when they come saying, God is with you. Help us. Feed us. And Isaiah 55 says they'll come and they'll be able to eat without money and to drink without money. The God will provide and He'll use us as the nurses, as the providers, and He will use us as the leaders to gather these people together. No, not to gather them. They'll come saying, let us attach ourselves to you. <clears throat> that we may do the work of the Lord because God is with you. Emmanuel means God with us. God gave us that knowledge, brethren. We cannot run from it. We cannot hide from it. We have to accept it, commit ourselves to it, and finish the course and be ready to help when this occurs. I gave this sermon to let us understand that it is soon, and we best be ready. <laughs>